Friends, welcome to another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. I want to talk a little bit about math today because math is something that I think it gets relegated to the the trash bin as we look for more sexy things to talk about in education. Right now, there's a lot of talk about the science of reading and you know, there's some attempt to say that there should be a science of math. Also, they're not exactly analogous because the science of reading does have some settled science behind it where I think there's more of a consensus about the way forward and what could work, even if we're not doing it always in reading. But when it comes to math, there couldn't be a more important foundational subject for us to do well at in the United States. And, you know, the short story is just we're not doing it right now. We are not getting the job done when it comes to getting kids to high levels of math proficiency by the time that they leave high school and hopefully by the time that they leave college. If you looked at national statistics, you would see that most Americans, one, have a math phobia. Number two, it's common in more than any other subject to say, I'm not good at that. To be able to say, you know, I'm not good at math. I'm not a math person as if, you know, God just made some math people. And then everybody else, like you're, you know, humans and civilians. So I think this is something we have to talk about because number one, math is everywhere. Math is underneath everything that we do in life. Math is, you know, beneath the surface of most things that we're trying to understand in life. So just to put up our hands and say, we're not good at math is not going to cut it. There was this article a couple years ago by Aaron Richards in USA Today. It's called Math Scores Stink in America. Other countries teach it differently and see higher achievement. I've always been fascinated with this other countries teach it differently thing. Ever since I saw years ago, some Asian countries their math books being very thin. And I could go upstairs right now and pull one of my kids' math books. We have to take them out of the backpack because the backpack is getting too heavy because of the size of these textbooks that we have. So when it comes to me being a parent wanting to help my kid with homework, and I open that book and I look at it, and it's got a million pages, literally, guys. If I showed you this book, it's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know how we expect anybody to think that they're good at this unless it's just something... They look at that book and they're really turned on by it. They're just like naturally native to it. With all of that as an opening and a buildup, I am bringing in friend of the show, Gary Rubenstein, award-winning math teacher in New York, New York math teacher, who has his own blog. And if you want to check it out, he's findable, I should say, on his blog, the Gary Rubenstein's blog. You can find it at Gary GaryRubenstein.wordpress.com. He's been writing for years. And we have talked a lot about education politics and things, you know, concerning like, you know, TFA and other things. But I really wanted to have Gary on for math expertise, because it's something I'm really trying to learn about, trying to figure out what the ins and outs are. So this is what Gary does. Gary, welcome to the show. Appreciate you coming on to the expert, not in policy debates, but in math to talk about math. Thanks a lot. I'm excited to talk about this. I'm trying to write about it more. It's, it's sort of my life's passion doing math and teaching math. And it's nice to get a chance to talk about this kind of thing. I appreciate that you have so much experience working with actual students and you get to see some of the brightest students coming to your school. And I think you would have insight into what many students are getting in terms of their pathway, like what they're taking in the sequences of math and what many students aren't getting in terms of what you think, even to get to your level in secondary, what would you be wishing that was going on differently for more of our students in terms of their their math pathway as they come to you to high school? Well, even more so than my own students, uh, I taught elsewhere and I have two kids, one's in seventh grade and one's in 10th grade. So I've been sort of reliving 
you know, the math from the beginning. And then, you know, when I was a kid, I wasn't a math teacher yet. So I didn't have a context to look at this stuff. I just assumed, oh, we're learning how to find greatest common factor. That must be an important thing one day. Or we're learning how to add fractions that have variables in the denominator. That must be an important thing one day. And I was pretty obedient. And I, I liked the finality of, of math and the, the sort of the comfort. But these topics, watching my own kids go through them, most of the topics that we, that we teach are just not engaging. So there's our, there's our first like issue. Even if we were to learn all these things in that giant textbook that you just described, they'd be much, much better off learning a smaller subset of things, but, but learning those well. And that was actually one of the um, good ideas when they, when they came up with the idea of the Common Core. That was the very first thing they said. They used a nice quote, which was that math today is a mile wide and an inch deep. And the idea that we're learning all these things, these checkboxes that we're checking off. So the math is not that engaging. I'd much rather see people learning a better subset of topics. And I think we would have better results in our country because the, the mind-numbing math topics Students don't know the difference. You know, they're taught this one day. Some, as a math teacher and as a math lover, there are certain days where I'm like, ah, this is a good topic. Because this one, maybe it's not even a practical topic, but it makes people like think and wonder and get excited about math. And certain other topics are dull and they turn people off. So I'd like to see people learning more of the more interesting topics and not necessarily relevant. I, I think math, if it's like a puzzle, a challenge, something to just get your brain moving is a good thing in its own right. And there's not enough of that. I see too much sort of mind numbing math. So of course we do poorly in it. Who would want to learn that? You know, most of it. You know, there's a point in which your math career that things jump from being rational and making sense to going into some different Greek-like language. <laughs> so there's a point in which, like, you know, one plus one equals two, and you're in arithmetic, and that stuff actually seems to have a lot of logic behind it that's easy to grasp, you know, easy for most people to grasp. And then I want to say maybe about fifth, sixth, seventh grade, there's something that starts happening where you're moving into formulas and more complex things. And if you just don't know something, it kind of screws you up on everything else that comes after that. And I wonder if that's true. Like I'm thinking that way as a person who did not do well in math in school because I hit this this wall that I just described, this point at which there was a grade in which where it, it just became weird in terms of the difference between it making sense and not making sense. And then as a parent, I've been through this now multiple times and watching my kids year by year bring math homework home and looking at it. And there's a point in which we're, as a parent, I know a lot of parents probably can agree with this, where it's making total sense to you. And then they come home one year and you're kind of like, man, <laughs> we're gonna have to take you to mathnasium. I have no idea what that is that you're looking at there. Is that right? Is this just my perception? And is there a way to get around that and something we should be doing to kind of make sure that there are more bridges from grade to grade? Well, it's exactly right. What you described, the math curriculum was kind of created with the endpoint in mind. Like, oh, we want back in the 1950s, we want kids to take calculus one day or be ready for calculus in college. Oh, in calculus, there's this question with X's and Y's in it. So let's make sure in fifth grade, they know how to do 5X plus 6Y minus 2X plus 7Y mm. so that one day when they're in calculus and they have to do that as part of the bigger question, but they have no context for why would I care about 5X plus... So it's, so it's hard because it's so abstract it doesn't seem fun. I think math, if it's fun, it's going to go a long way, even if it's not practical. So the math that they're learning, a lot of it is, is not fun or practical. 
So yes, they turn off, they get confused by it. It's so abstract, 5x minus 2y plus 3x minus 7y. Why is it that I have to, you know, subtract these and what is this going on? And then they're lost Mm -hmm. because now in the path, the march to calculus, there's a time where you have to do a more complicated question, which involves the 5x plus 3y. And if you couldn't master that, now you can't do this next thing. That's why this whole chain of topics leading towards calculus is very outdated. I would cut about half Mm. the topics and expand the others. And I would add in stuff that's a little more whimsical because like a musical instrument. Imagine there's a great book. It's an essay, but it became a book. It's called Lockhart's Lament. And it's a math teacher who says that the way we teach math now is akin to someone teaching music badly, where you don't play an instrument. You learn how to write the notes. Then you learn how to transpose. Then you learn chord progressions. But when is it that you sit down and play a little tune and you never do? So of course they're bad at it and, and, and they hate it. So adding in some of that more fun to get people, if someone likes math, they're going to be more motivated to, to do it. But, but you're right. Once you get fall off the, the math train and because it's not like, okay, we learned this topic and now we're going to do something totally different, but everything is building on the last thing. You could easily have a math curriculum that jumps from topic to topic and that those little skills like 5X plus 2Y wouldn't be needed for the next thing because there's so many branches of math, but we just follow the one branch that leads from kindergarten through calculus. You know, there's there's a lot of stats around if you take eighth grade algebra, what it means for graduation and college entrance. There's stuff that I've heard or I've been told about like, you know, the predictability of how well you're going to do to graduate from high school and go to college based upon some of these milestones, these math milestones that you have. And you've mentioned calculus a few times. So Gary, I'm a civilian in the United States and you are a math teacher. And I'm saying to you, I have lived this life. I'm not a young guy. So I've lived this life, gotten through multiple jobs. The job that I have right now is my 43rd job in my life, to be very honest with you. So if I were to sit down and if I thought about many of those, how important algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus was, maybe I'm using some version of those things for some questions in life that I'm asking, but I sure don't know it. This is going to sound like a very elementary, dumb question, but what is all of this this traditional pathway of subjects, Algebra 1, Algebra 2, Geometry, which I think weirdly kind of interrupts Algebra 1 between Algebra 2 and for some reason that has never made sense to me why that goes like that. But what is this traditional sequencing doing for the average person in terms of preparation for jobs and life and careers, day-to-day living, shopping, calculating, you know, uh, mortgage loans, you know, car loans and stuff. Like what's the practical application of these things if you're not going to go into STEM or you're not going to become a math person in some way, shape or form? What, what's the big deal? There, well, there's no application. There's nothing that anyone in their daily life needs from those courses, Algebra 1, Geometry, Algebra 2, Pre-Calculus, Calculus. So that's why when I come to school each day to teach, I think, okay, what if this is the only, this lesson on its own? Can I make this into an experience that the kid had some moments in math, the currency is what it calls you in my mind, eureka moments. Like, was there a thing where I showed a kid something and said, what if I change this to this? Now, what would the answer be? How does this change? And I get them thinking. So I think there's benefit. You got to learn something in school, right? We can make a similar <laughs> argument for, for chemistry, physics, biology. 
my kid was taking biology and she was doing like uh, the Krebs cycle and, and to extreme detail. And I said, why, why do we need this? So you got to learn something in school. Some math, I, I think math up until like seventh or eighth grade is good. I think if you don't learn any math, you would never know if you liked it and you would never know if you were showing, well, really, if you liked it, you could get aptitude if you're liking it. If you don't like it, you might also get aptitude, but most people don't like it. So in answer to your question, though, those things, trigonometry, know that you never use it. And that's why I never tell my students, oh, this is important because you need it for calculus, because that's not a motivational reason, or you need it for this. But I try to say, we're learning this because it's a, it's a mystery. Today I was teaching, I, I teach a class called Math Research. I get the opportunity to not just teach the typical courses, but I get to teach a course to ninth graders that I teach any topic that I want. So I have total freedom. What did I teach today? It was one of the best days of the year. I taught them, didn't so I created an opportunity with hints where they could figure out, is there a way to add, shortcut, one cubed, one, one times one times one, plus two cubed, plus three cubed, plus four cubed, up to 100 cubed. Now, that question isn't important when you talk about what am I using in life? No, that question is less important than the trigonometry. However, in my mind, my students were so engaged by this riddle because I, as a teacher, created hints. So it became a puzzle and it became wonderment. And my students there, out of that lesson, have more of a chance at pursuing math because they enjoy it. But the stuff you're talking about, trigonometry, geometry. There was once a theory that those things train the mind. Like if you know geometry proof, it's like you have to organize, like what do I know? What's my given? And now that I have this, what do I wish I knew that would help me get to the thing on my goal? Like in life, you have, here I am, here's my goal. What's missing between my starting point and my goal and how could I bridge the gap? It's lofty to say that geometry teaches that. But if someone likes geometry because you gave them fun questions that they liked it and then they one day go further in math because they like it. But in answer to your question, the, those things are, are, are not, no one uses them in their life. And a lot of them are mind numbing also. So they get lose-lose in, in my mind. So let's stick with this for a second. You know, staying very elementary for many people like myself who want to access these topics and know a little bit. So we just said there's no 100% practical application, but I like what you just said that there could be some thinking or science around, though a well-rounded person who does have a grasp on these separate math subjects and topics might think differently just in life. Maybe you don't directly apply it, but maybe that, I mean, does that make you better at Scrabble or a better game theory person? Or if you're playing Fortnite, does that somehow, you know, are there parts of the brain that are being activated? Well, let me back up. What does algebra do for you? <laughs> Before we ta even talk about applications, let's just talk very kind of elementary. What does algebra, what does that do for you? Yes, you hear people say, algebra for all, yes, algebra for none, exactly. algebra for all eighth graders, <laughs> algebra for no eighth graders. So what is algebra? You know, officially, arithmetic is when you're saying like five plus two equals seven. And algebra is when you're saying X plus five equals seven. And you're finding the, the, the unknown, the missing piece. So even a first grader, box plus five equals seven. And so box plus five equals seven. You know, how does a kid do that? Well, let's, let's say, let's say box plus two equals seven. Kid might think, okay, plus two, that's, that's close to seven. So, okay, it's five. Uh, you know, I figure it out. And then later on, well, with algebra, Box plus two equals seven. Let's call it X instead. X plus two equals seven. 
yeah, you could just look at it and know it's five. What if it's more complicated? Here's like a method. When you take away two from the X plus two, it becomes X. But when you take away two from the seven, it becomes five. So X equals five. And then they get, here's a harder question. X times X plus two times X equals 15. Hmm. And you build up various ways of solving for X. I mean, that's officially what, what algebra is. It's morphed into a collection of not just doing those sorts of questions, but creating uh, graphs, taking an equation, and taking the points from that equation, the, the data, and then putting it on a grid. And then you got the lines and the circles. And those lines could have some significance in statistics. It could be like a scientific data that you're plotting in a line. And then you could turn that line back into an equation, which you could then use math to answer questions about this line. So you get data, and then it turns into an, a line, approximately, maybe. And then the line turns into an equation. Okay, let's stop there for a second. What kind of question is that answering? If I were to apply this now, what would I be using that for in the world? So let's say that line is going downward, and it's about like uh, climate change or, or something, you know, and we want to know, or it's going upward, it's, it's, it's the temperature of the water. You know, this is the most simplistic idea of it, but maybe it's going up in a, in a line. And now we could predict the future now. We can say, okay, now that I've gotten some, some points on this line, I can make an equation. And with that equation, I can use it to predict, you know, what's going to happen in 10 years at this rate. Now, most of the algebra, you actually don't really need X's and Y's to do that. If you see, oh, it's going up by one degree every 10 years, you don't need algebra. <laughs> you could say so in 20 years, it's going to go up by two degrees. You, could, um, you, don't, you don't need to make an equation, you know, one-tenth X plus 15 equals temperature. You don't need to. So a lot of the things we actually do algebra for, my son is really pretty intuitive at math. And he, he's doing learning algebra he's in seventh grade, pre-algebra. They said, okay, you, you, you pay $20 for a thing and you get $4 back, how much did it cost you? And he said, 20 minus four, you know, equals 16. And they said, you know, no, it's X plus four equals 20. And then you subtract four from four. And I said, that's crazy. Don't do that one that yeah. way. So a lot of the things that people say algebra is good for, you actually could do your elementary math from sixth, seventh and eighth grade. Now, Chris, I'm going to tell you, there's a book that everybody, well, your listeners and you should read because I've read hundreds of books where people try to popularize math and talk about the importance. And it is called Humble Pie with a mm -hmm. P-I. And it's this mathematician slash comedian. Every chapter is about how some mistake in math led to some kind of calamity. Like the challenge, Space Shuttle Challenger exploded because they were converting metric into standard units and they rounded too far and it caused this piece to be too small or there was a bridge they made. And it doesn't get into the nuts and bolts of the math. But when you read that book, you're like, oh, I see now. Why didn't anyone tell me that this is why we could learn math? So I would love to see more of Humble Pie. And, and, and when you read that, you get it, even without necessarily knowing the X's and the Y's. Is that true? I mean, are those examples true? Yes. So the base shuttle crash was the result of bad math? Yeah, well, that, that, that one might have been actually the Mars rover. Oh, okay. But um no, no, the space shuttle, that one was real interesting. They reused their fuel tank, and the fuel tank needs to be uh, uh, as much of a cylinder as possible. Well, how do you know how perfectly this something's a cylinder? You might say, okay, I'll just measure across, but is one measurement enough? 
because you might get something that's sort of smushed. But if you just, so how many measurements? So they didn't do enough measurements on the space shuttle. How many times across? And they ended up with a, 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 a tank that wasn't as perfectly cylindrical as it needed to be because they made an assumption. Oh, I love that book. The Mars Rover, I think they bought a, um, they bought screws, you know, but they bought them, we needed a certain number of, you know, millimeters, you know, or inches or whatever, but the screws we were buying were millimeters. So we converted and ordered them, you know, and it was off by a rounding factor. That book will blow your mind and it will make you think about math. You'll, you'll have a new appreciation for math and less, and even, and you'll, dislike the math your kids are doing more because they're not getting that. This is what I would love to see more of. So I heard you earlier say that you would teach fewer subjects just better. I'm definitely hungry for these examples like the ones you just gave. So this book for me is going to be great that you just mentioned because I love some real life applications. One of the most common ones that I looked up before this show today, and I had a previous conversation earlier today about math. So I wanted to pull it up for that discussion was the math behind a jump shot in basketball. And, you know, I happen to have a son who's very much into basketball, not so much into the math or uh, school more generally. (laughs) But if there was any way I could tell him that he could improve in basketball by knowing any of this stuff, it becomes way more interesting, I think, in, you know, especially if it works. Like, Like, it's one thing to say this is the math of a, you know, jump shot. But if your jump shot becomes better, then you're more interested. If it doesn't actually become better, then, you know, it's kind of a non-applicable thing. But that's very helpful. Like, so the good thing is the jump shot. The bad thing is the miscalculation of what it takes for these space programs or whatever. Something calamity happens. That's very interesting to me. Yeah. More interesting than what you guys are teaching. <laughs> yes. Well, he, he could do data on his jump shot, you know? You remember back in the day where you would aim for the uh, the box, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the square, and no one does that anymore, you know? What if you took 100 shots and saw, you know, how many times did you get it in when you aimed you know, or if you did like an underhand free throw and you say, huh, it turns out I actually get this in, you know, more uh, than I got it in before. So you could do some basic stats. And then, of course, you know, there is some advanced math about like the trajectory and how if it's too flat, you know, it's going to hit this. It's going to it has more of a chance to hit this rim as, it, you know, to get that arc. So there's like a para, there's like a shape. And, and, you know, you watch the great shooters and they, and they have a certain amounts of loft, you know, but not too much because that makes it too hard. You're throwing it up 40 feet in the air. And then that becomes in calculus, something called optimization. What is my ideal launch angle? You know, how should I throw it? What angle am I doing it to increase my, my chances? And, and that, that ends up becoming a calculus, like an optimization. They, they graph it and they see, you know, oh, they have a curve. Oh, if I if I throw it at this angle, I you know I get more chance to get it in. It's things like that, and not even mine because I love this example. If I were to say to my kid, "This is Steph Curry's math, like and his angle and his arc. Mm-hmm. This is the this yeah. is the arc that he uses, or whatever." And so you might want to go out and study yours. Do what you just said. Go out and shoot like fifty shots and try it one way and try it the other way and bring yeah. me back your data and we'll work on it. I can guarantee you my kid would probably do that on a Saturday more than he would do anything else like in homework. Okay. So, so I hope it helps him. That's great. So let's move to, so that was algebra. What is geometry and why is geometry a thing? <laughs> so geometry was invented by the ancient Greeks and they wrote a great book in 300 BC, someone named Euclid. And from 300 BC, until 19, 
50, so thereabout. That was how you learned geometry. You read Euclid's Elements. Abraham Lincoln carried around with him. What is it? Everything you ever wanted to know about triangles and circles, <laughs> but were afraid to ask. You know, if, if, you, if you take a circle and you make two points on the circle and you join them, and then you take two other points and join those. It makes like an X looking thing, but not right down the middle. And what if you know three, it didn't hit it down the middle, and you know three or four of the lengths. Is there a way to calculate the fourth length? That's an example of something they learn in geometry. It is only useful in the fact, like I make it fun when I teach that. I make it a mystery. I make it, huh, there's three numbers. Let's move the points around. Look, this one's changing, but is there some way? Ooh, I notice that it seems like the product of these two is always equal to the product of those two. But is it always true? Let's try to prove it now using geometry. What are we given? What do we know? What's our toolkit? Oh, okay, we have these triangles. And we know that if I know three pieces of the triangle, then the other three have to also be equal. But no, it is. You could not teach geometry. You could just not have it. It wouldn't matter. I mean, who's using it? Gary, is it? Is it? Architects? Is that, I mean, who's this for? No, an architect. So I, I'm friends with an architect and he was showing me that they, um, they made an elliptical garden. And I said, okay. I said, I bet you uh, took, you know, two stakes and then put string around it and pulled the string to create the ellipse. He goes, no, <laughs> we, just, <laughs> we just eyeballed it. Now mm -hmm. I, I will say that engineers do have to know their triangles because a, a triangle is like a very like stable mm -hmm. in, in mechanics, you know, shape. So there could be some like engineering, like not architects. I'm thinking more like a like an engineer who like tells you if the building is like going to fall down or not. I mean, they have to know some materials and calculus and how the things bend. It's real advanced calculus that most people never you know get to. And even if they, if you're going to become an architect or, or that type of thing in college, you would learn the nitty gritty of that sort of thing. So what happens is by teaching geometry. I do like some geometry, but, but most of it, like everything else, it, like I like, uh, we talked about pi in the last podcast. And I like that as like a eternal mystery of humankind. And like, it's, it's a mystery, but no, does anyone need to know that two core, it's called chord when two points on a circle intersect in such a way. And it turns a lot of people off so that they never take math again, as soon as they are not forced to. And we force people to take math until like 11th or 12th grade. I say force them to take it until like 8th, 7th or 8th grade. I, I do think if you don't take it till 8th grade, you'll never know if you liked it. So, so we do have to. But after that, if we make it good enough, people might want to take geometry because, ooh, Euclid's elements. I want to learn all this obscure, you know, in Euclid's time, it was like, that was the eternal, like Plato, like that was like the ideal world we were learning about, like heaven, like in, in the ideal world, there's these circles with the two lines. But no, we shouldn't have to know that. As a parent, you know, you just say to your kid, because I said so, right? So your kid, your kid says to you, why do I have to learn this? You know, yes. and this is the good thing about geometry. This is what I'm asking about this particular one. You know, what's your answer as a parent? You know, your kid is telling you like, I hate this. And I don't even know why this, you know, it feels like an exercise and nothing, right? Like, just like, like someone's making me do something for no relevant reason. They can't find the relevance. So we would love to be able to say, well, if you don't know how to do this, you won't know how to like something in life, right? Right. We say that to our kids, most of the parents do, because they've been told that. No, I tell my, my kid, no, this is, you know, we're doing it because it's fun and it's a mystery and it's a, it's, it's a challenge, like doing a Rubik's Cube or something like that. There's no practical. Or, but, but I will say one thing that's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. You got to learn something in school, right? 
So why is math this thing that everyone has to learn and everyone's got to learn it and we test them on it and, and all that? And, you know, I do think we have to learn something. So whatever it is, and we, we've, you and I have talked about standardized test scores, there is something important about, you said in the last podcast, I want all kids, white kids and black kids to do well on mm-hmm. a standardized test, even if the math is meaningless. I think there's a case to be made if you're going to learn something, if a teacher is going to teach something and you're going to be doing homework in it, whether it's math or chess or music, you should get proficient at it, whatever it is. So if you're going to have to learn geometry, you better learn geometry. You like, And if they switched geometry, mm-hmm. if they took out geometry and said everyone's going to learn chess that year, I would have no problem with that. But you got to learn chess then. You got to take this chess lesson then and say, hmm, mate in three. Hmm. If I try the chess would be just as good as, as geometry as far as here's my given information, the chess board in this situation. And here's my goal. Checkmate. How do I get there? I, I love chess. If your kids don't play, I would definitely introduce them to it. Oh, chess was big in my growing years. Maybe geometry wasn't, and maybe all this wasn't, but you know, in the 70s and 80s, if you had a black dad, there was a good chance that you were doing three things, watching Bruce Lee movies and thinking about martial arts a lot, playing chess, because there was this explosion of like chess as being a thing that we, you know, we had to do, and tennis. It was just really weird. Those three things, Uh all my friends, not all of them, but many of my friends had a dad that was pushing one of those or all three of those things in the 70s and 80s. And it was really, that was easier to stomach because you didn't have to ask, this is to your point, why am I doing this? Because it was a game. It was fun. Right. So I didn't have to ask, why are you pushing me on the tennis of all things? You yes. know, well, yes. it's a game and it's competitive and it has points, you know, and you can win or you can lose, you know, and you can change your strategies. And then chess was a really good one because my yes. dad was merciless when it came to, to playing me in chess. He would just, he would whoop me so badly that it made me want to go and read something about like how to beat him. <laughs> yeah. So it was great. Yeah. No one ever asked in chess, you know, when am I going to use this? And then no one says, well, if you're ever a general and you have one piece that could go di- one person who could only move diagonally and another person who could only move in straight lines, how are you going to command your army? No, they don't have to because nobody asks, when are we going to use chess? But they rightfully ask, when am I going to use math? Cause it's not fun to them. Now I often have to teach a topic that, I don't enjoy, I I know I told you I teach an elective where I could pick any topic I want, but three out of my five classes, I have a a set, set curriculum and each day I try to make it more interesting and it's hard. And you know, there's no real place for me to share my lessons. (laughs) You know, you always talk about how can we like make math better in this country? If we're going to learn it, you know, let's learn it. Let's be good at it, whatever it is. And if it's going to be math, let's do it Right. And in, in this country, it doesn't seem like, I remember during the pandemic, I was trying to share my lessons thinking, oh, this is a good opportunity. Everyone's online, but it, it's hard. It's not, there's not like a good, like centralized place for it. Although on YouTube, plenty of really good YouTubers who talk about math a lot, number file, for example. But yeah, we definitely need to make some changes, but also about the standardized tests. If you're going to learn math, learn it. Yeah, it's standardized tests. So let's, let's jump on this point. Before we do, I'll say this. These last three examples that we gave really start a conversation about the gamification of these things. And I I think that gamification in education is one of those things where 
um, it might might make some eyes roll, right? There might be some cynicism about, man, we've tried so many different things and this this could feel trendy. But look at the examples that we just gave. Chess was very easy for me to spend hours on, like to really, you know, think about it a lot. Tennis, I don't think, I don't know if you don't play tennis that you would know. There's a lot to it. It's not just smacking a ball, right? There's a lot of precision and things you have to think about and and try over and over again. And there's a lot of rigor to that. Uh, Same thing with Kung Fu. So gamifying some of these things. I have seen one classroom in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, where a a teacher had completely left all of the textbooks on the the shelf. Actually, they were never even opened. And he gamified his entire classroom. And the kids in that classroom were, they were chomping at the bit to come to school, like to be in his class. They just loved it. And the thing that um, stood out to me that I've told this story a million times The thing that stood out to me after that visit was that there were kids in that classroom who were showing me games that they were playing that were actually games that you had to know math to win. And they were doing concepts, even though they didn't know that they were doing these, but they were doing some form of math. I can't remember what the math was that they were doing, but they were playing over the holidays at home because they didn't want to lose their ranking and their numbers in the game. So they continued playing even when they were at home and when they weren't in school because they didn't want to lose their their ranking. And I thought, isn't this interesting? My kids balk at homework. And I just have to tell you that homework as a parent right now, with multiple kids especially, is the bane of our existence. Like homework is the, oh my God, I wish we could do something about homework. But I mean, think about how kids... Think about this guy's kids wanting his students wanting to play over Thanksgiving when I can't get my kids to crack their books on their own without me having to say something, you know, each night. So maybe gamification is one of the things we shouldn't be so cynical about. There are, of course, you know, there's there's a lot of technologies and some are good and, and some are bad. And sometimes it's hard to, to tell the difference, you know, between which one is what I consider like authentic learning and which ones just looks good. Sometimes in my class, just to, to make it fun, sometimes I'll do this. There's a thing called Kahoot, where you create a game show, a multiple choice game show, and the kids compete against each other. You know, does that make them really learn it better? They certainly get into it. But it, to me, the goal of doing it was not that, oh, that's going to help me assess them or they're going to learn it because of it, but make school like a, like an engaging you know sort of thing. And it's hard to do that sometimes. So a lot of technologies are very good. There's something called Desmos Activity Builder. And it's very good. And it was free. It's, it, they, they started it for free, of course. And then, you know, they start charging for it. I like that one. It's like a game. It's like a challenge. It's like escape the room. You know, you, you show up on a page and there's like a point and you drag it around and you watch the triangle change and then you answer questions. Hmm, what do you notice? You know, and there's, there's these leading questions. So it's like a, like a mystery. I do like that. The only problem, which and this might not be a problem 20 years from now, but just right now, Somehow, and I know this from my son, we try to print out his homework because it's on like a Google classroom online, but his brain turns off when there's a screen in front of him. And there might be like something, I'm I'm not a scientist, but like the flickering of the light, whatever it is, it's better for him to pen and pencil and paper because something happens. It's just like a, a reaction to a screen. So I always try to temper that with like not doing too much. You could have games that aren't a, there's a, there's a book, I think it's called Math Games with Bad Drawings. And they have like, because this guy wrote a book called Math with Bad Drawings. And then he wrote a sequel called Math Games with Bad Drawings. And it's a collection of games that are like, 
like variations on tic-tac-toe, and they have the mathematical thinking in them. And, and I, I do like that. But yes, I think since math is this with these skills, gamifying has some potential. I, I definitely give for homework sometimes when it's just like a skill lesson. Do this on this computer platform and it, it grades it for them automatically. And I get back all this data. How many times did it take this kid to get five questions right? That, that sort of thing. There's, there's real potential in that as long as it's hard for people to know the difference or to not overuse the technology. I look at two that were very much into Fortnite. We all at one point were all very much into Minecraft. I had my own server and my own realm and was building a world, a whole world in Minecraft. And it occurred to me at some point, the skills that you're using to build within Minecraft actually have some learning opportunities, some things that you could learn from doing it. And then I have a daughter who's very much into Roblox. The thing about those platforms as a potential platform for learning is how sticky they are like how they can keep their attention for hours. Like you can live in the Minecraft universe for hours and not even know hours went by. So if there was a way to interject into those universes, something where you're not just mind-numbingly looking at a screen for those hours, but you are learning something while you're in there, I think that's the best of both worlds because it's so sticky. Like it keeps you, it keeps your attention. Yes, my son got into Minecraft and one day he was trying to, he looked up something online and he was building the equivalent of an electrical circuit on Minecraft. There are these blocks that essentially are like circuitry and or gates. And he was making a thing. And I'm thinking, this is great. I mean, yes, this is the sort of thing you did in like the 1960s with your, you know, your electronics kit. But he was doing it on Minecraft. Minecraft also has the ability to code like if you're hand building a world or if you want to make a world where like there's like trees every, you know, it picks a random number and makes a tree here or there to get like spread out trees. There's coding. And I, I, I like computer programming. I think everybody should take at least one one year of, of coding. That's a fun thing that I think gives you more than geometry does. And it's still officially a type of math. So, yes, if it's something that a kid likes and you find some way like, hey, in Minecraft, if I teach you how to program in Python, you could make your world somehow better, more automated, more random, or whatever it is you're trying. So finding ways to to incorporate math into something that a kid likes nowadays with these games, it, it is more possible. I think, you know, your point about Minecraft, though, is very well taken because when you're building buildings, there's architectural design where shapes become very important, you knowing shapes. But to your point also about the electrical circuitry, they're different. You have to go out and find different parts of that circuitry to put them together so that you're exploring for it. You know what you're looking for and you know how to put them together. And then you can make like I built a roller coaster and that roller coaster would have been easier to build if I knew more about electrical stuff and more about math and whatever. But I did learn something in, in building it. And then there's a, a chemistry and biology because you can make potions. Different potions do different things in Minecraft. So for me, it feels like this platform that could give us a part of the solution to relevance and to the future and making the classroom sticky. But we're not there yet. So let's go to the next thing, too, because thank you for that on algebra and geometry. What is trig and why do we need trigonometry? Like, why is trigonometry a thing? When I tell you this, you're going to not be happy. <laughs> <laughs> so trigonometry is when you know some information about a triangle. You know like two of the sides and one of the angles. 
and you want to find out the other sides and angles of that triangle. And this morphs. So then there's the relationships between angles and lengths is encapsulated in the three things called sine, cosine, and tangent. Anytime you get trigonometry, you're talking about sine, cosine, and tangent, which are things that tell you when I say sine 30 degrees equals one half, that's a fancy way of saying that if you made a triangle that had a 30 degree angle and a 90 degree angle and a 60 degree angle, the side across from the 30 would be exactly half the length of the long side. This eventually turns into information about points moving around circles, because if a point's moving around a circle, it creates a, a right triangle. You can make it if you connect the center to the point. And then you start learning about points that are moving around circles. You could predict where they're moving. And then in engineering, eventually, there's a lot of circular motion happening. So there was a time when trigonometry was very useful for surveying. You know, you'd go out with your thing. There's still people who are surveyors, you know, and you would like use your telescope. But a lot of what we learn in trigonometry is really obscure and it gets forgotten. Sometimes I say, you know, if we stopped teaching trigonometry, it wouldn't matter because nobody, people forget it. You see, compare math trigonometry to like a foreign language. I took three years of Spanish back in the day and I still know a little bit of Spanish because it, it stuck because it was, but most adults who took all this math and trigonometry, especially, they, it's gone. So what if we didn't teach it at all? Well, we should teach it a little because, and, and you know, I, I know you have some interest in like the equity issues where if you say, I'm only going to teach trigonometry to some people, then they say, well, of course, it's going to be the white kids that are going to get the trigonometry and the black kids aren't. I would say they're all better off without the trigonometry. However, if only one group's going to get it, that's not fair either. But trigonometry, it's about triangles and circles, more triangles and circles. How do we know how big this side is of this triangle? Yes, there are some situations where there's an airplane flying above and basically you and the airplane and the point on the ground under the airplane forms a large triangle. And you could tell like how fast is the plane going based on, I, I, you know, the angle now is this, but two seconds later, the angle is this. So I can figure out how fast the plane's going. This totally does not sound like something that people would use in regular life. There was a time where it was. So yeah, that one sounds like very much what you said. If you stopped teaching trig, I don't know how the world would be different, but it's still to an earlier point that you made. If it is going to be the normal traditional pathway of some groups of people, and it is going to improve their thinking overall, like maybe you're not using it every day. Maybe you don't need to know trigonometry to pump your gas. Cool. But if there's something about like having a bigger world fund of information, there's a point in which your thinking can be bigger because you know these things than if you don't know them, right? I definitely agree with that. And then you get to the issue of if we teach all the topics we're trying to teach, maybe you know a subset of trigonometry would be interesting to people and they would still, they come out with more trigonometry. You know, even though you taught them less, you made it, you know, you know right now we teach nothing gets cut out of the curriculum. The only thing that ever got cut out of the curriculum was uh, computing square roots by hand. When when we came on before the show, you asked me square root of uh, of five thousand, and you had an answer. <laughs> I think I said seventy, but now that I, yeah, seventy times seventy is forty nine hundred. I actually love teaching square roots by hand because it's an intellectual, you know, it's it's an intellectual challenge, and it's like interesting to me. But there's so much that isn't. But yes, if if we're going to teach trigonometry, you know, let's teach it better 
Let's pick a subset of it. And yes, let's have everyone everyone learn it who's, who's gotten to that level and not keep it away from certain groups of people. I, I definitely, but, but right now, there's so many topics that by the time we get to trigonometry, a lot of kids are so disenchanted with math and only like, honestly, like to me, math is almost a test of obedience sometimes. And not to say that some groups are less obedient, but in, you know, these standardized tests that are the math, you know, sometimes it tests a little bit of like, okay, you know, I just, you know, follow these, these rules. And this is where you and I once talked about, like, they call it woke math, you know, just like, what does it mean if you're going to teach white kids, you're going to teach black kids, brown kids, is there something that you should do differently? And some people say, and I'm not saying that I agree with this, but I'm just saying this would be an argument that white kids are more like the culture is such that, okay, I got to learn math. I don't care. I don't, I don't think about it. Or maybe there's a reason or not, but I'm doing it because I'm told to. And not that black kids are disobedient in any way, but we should teach everybody in a way that makes them you know, invested in it. And that somehow the white kids, they don't need to be invested as much because they just do it because they're told. Again, so, so, so the argument is that, well, I would say all kids should learn in a way where they're not just doing what they're told. And I feel like the woke math, the national debate, misses so much of the debate because I don't know what would be taught in the woke math. But I went and looked at the rubric of Washington State and California to see what they would be teaching and where and how, like what sequencing would be and whatever. And it certainly didn't feel to me like it was some fluffy kind of let's just, you know, talk about social justice and not learning any math. It was just because, you know, there's very sophisticated kind of science behind what they're doing and the rubrics and everything that I, I read through or whatnot. It, there's a rationale there that is meant to get you still to master math. But I think that some people just flex on the, well, I don't want people talking about oppression at all. Like just, I don't care in what context or what way. But I mean, you know, if you are living in a world where you constantly see on the internet, people say, well, you know, black people are 50% of the, or 13% of the population and commit 50% of the crime. Uh, I would just like my kids to be intellectually prepared to engage in that conversation and tell you why that's a stupid statistical um, argument that's being made rather than just saying, well, that's racist. Well, don't just tell me it's racist. If you're going to tell me that you're going to send out audit testers to Long Island to, to try and buy property and you send two black people and two white people with the exact same background. And statistically, there's a probability with the black couple that they're going to be steered towards worse loans, worse properties, and to white folks are automatically going to be steered towards better situations. Then I'm able to calculate over a generation what that does for wealth creation, right? So in these, when I say there's math and everything, you can just go around the world saying that things are unfair or unjust or whatnot. You also could take it to the next level and say, well, I'm going to actually apply science to it and apply a little bit of math to it so that I'm not just talking out of my my butt or, you know, whatever. And I do think that that's compelling for a certain group of people if you taught math that way, because it helps them unlock real world issues that isn't just about learning about, you know, how airplanes descend because they're never going to be a pilot, right? <laughs> so the whole woke math thing felt like it was missing the point, except as a civilian, as somebody who doesn't think about math every day. I brought this up in an early discussion today that the woke math thing was confusing to me because there was a professor at Berkeley and a professor at Stanford that were on opposite sides of the, the argument about California's new math curriculum, new math scheme. And, you know, it was being dubbed woke math. So the person at Stanford has standing in the, the math world. 
And the person at Berkeley does too. And the person at Berkeley got like a hundred math professors to sign on to a letter saying, this is the worst thing ever. Every kid needs to have the same thing. They all need the traditional path. They all need to go, you know, uh, arithmetic to calculus or whatever. And suggesting that eighth graders could go into data science, for instance, instead of doing algebra two or something like that. It's just the worst thing ever. Now, if you're a civilian and you're looking at this fight, amongst the experts, you don't really know what's going on. Like you're discombobulated because these are all people withstanding who are coming to very different conclusions about what we should be teaching and how we should be teaching math. And then now there's just confusion. Well, the data science is very interesting. You mentioned that statistic about 13% of the population. Another book that is a popular math book is called Weapons of Math Destruction. Kathy O'Neill, she writes about how computer algorithms how there's biases in them and they cause like, you know, the police are told to go to this neighborhood more so and it causes more people from that neighborhood, surprise, surprise, to be arrested because that's where they're going because the computer algorithm, in other words, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy based on, so like people don't know stuff like that. So yes, data science is a very good thing. It's actually pretty hard. Like it's beyond the basic stuff. It gets, it gets pretty hard to, to teach, but yes, things like that. And as far as woke math, you know, so if woke math means you have pictures up around your classroom of black mathematicians, you know, there are people that, that, that oppose that, you know, if woke math means that, that you never mention, we could calculate out, you know, when the, at this rate, when the icebergs are going to melt, you know, because to the kids that could be relevant. And, but that's woke because you're mentioning climate change, which is an agenda. So that's like Florida, what they define woke math as. But in California, see, the thing I'm most interested in, because I'm all about, I'm a teacher, I'm going in to teach every day. And if they tell me that in math, we used to mention science of math, the big debate is teacher-centered versus student-centered, if you want to make it four words. Teacher-centered in its, in its extreme is a teacher stands up. When you went to high school, this is what it would have been. And they talk and hopefully... They ask questions and hopefully they say, okay, everyone work on these five. I'm going to walk around and help you. They, they call that teacher-centered. And then student-centered in the extreme is the teacher hardly talks. The teacher gives, put students in groups and they help each other. And hopefully the activity is meaningful that they could actually accomplish something, you know, you know, with it. Of course, for me, it's, I would never do either extreme. I try to mix it in when, when appropriate. But I did see something, I think it was either in California or Seattle, where they basically said that because white kids, they're used to this power hierarchy. And, but that for black kids, the power hierarchy of the teacher in front of the room, whether that teacher is white or black, is like making them like submission or reminding them of things or, or whatever. And, and, and that they need more, you know, student-centered activities. And... I don't like that because what's a book? When you read a book, that's the most teacher-centered thing you could ever learn from. There's a book that you're reading, you know, a book about something, you know, not a novel, but like you're reading to learn. Sometimes there's a person who's an expert who's telling you some stuff and you got to understand it and learn it. Now, of course, I don't just teach that way, but I, but I would worry that someone would go too far extreme and say, you know, black kids shouldn't be subjected to teacher-centered learning because to me, when appropriate and done in the right balance, teacher-centered works a lot. And I would not want my child 
in a classroom where all they do is group work and the kids teach each other the math. This brings up one to me that is out. It's based in science and math. So when you think about a question of what you just said, like, you know, teacher centered or learner centered, you know, approaches to the teaching, you know that you have certain student populations that are coming from a resistance culture. Their engagement with the broader culture, the, the dominant culture, is one of perpetual resistance because they've been marginalized into a place where resistance is a healthy response. And because of that, like their their engagement when, you know, they don't have like an OP type of response to police officers. When they engage with police officers, they're more likely to have their whatever's the flight or flight chemical in you or whatever, they're more likely to have that going off than, say, a kid in the suburbs who sees officers pull kittens out of trees or whatever I'm making stuff up here. So if you think about the teaching, you know, what does math tell us? And what does science tell us? What do statistics? What what does empiricism tell us about if your kid is more like, if you're, you have a classroom that tips 70 to 80% black, how does that change some of the dynamics of what, of the way we should teach? For instance, like if you have more kids that come from a resistance culture versus fewer kids in a classroom that come from a resistance culture, would there be a way to answer the question of what's the best way to teach based on studying it, right? <laughs> like, you know, thinking about it. Yes. Well, definitely no one should be absolute teacher-centered, like the extreme teacher-dominated. I want my students, like each day, even I'm at, at, at a school, my, my students are mostly Asian, actually, and I probably could lecture each day and everything would go fine. But I have these opportunities to talk to each other, work in groups, things like that. I think I probably would do a different balance if I was teaching in schools, predominantly black. But I would not go so extreme. And uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's a matter of finding, of finding the balance. And that's why the, the woke thing and having that, it's interesting because, hmm, it brings up a question. What is a good balance and how do you find it? Usually you find it by, by trying you, you teach, you know, and you do a balance and you say, huh, they didn't learn it too well. Let me try to, because even within any group, even within a different year or different periods in a day, the makeup of the class, the way the students responded to things could be different. So a teacher is like a scientist in that way. Like, okay, I noticed I did the group work and it looks good. Like if an administrator came in, they see everyone in groups, but then I tested them on it. You know, I gave a little diagnostic afterwards just to see, but yet they didn't learn it so well. So what's more important that it looks good, but you're bringing up, you know, this sort of culture, dominant culture. And these are all things that are years ago, no one even thought about them at all. So I think it's very good that people are, are, are thinking about them, but they don't want to oversimplify it either and say, you know, you don't want to ever stand up in front uh, of a group of black kids and say, you know, here's the Pythagorean theorem. But I try in all my lessons, because that's boring for everybody, teacher dominated. <laughs> so everyone hates that. Uh, that's a cross-cultural shared uh, uh, hatred for things. You know, so this is making me think a lot. I'm glad we're having this discussion because this helps me. When I said earlier, math is everywhere. And it underpins a lot of what we, um, what we talk about. Where we're coming to in this discussion is this idea to me that it could settle a lot of the debates that we're having nationally about a lot of things if we really did think about them through the lens of uh, math and science rather than the partisan witchcraft. 
So I feel like we are a people who are getting dumber in a lot of ways. I just want to be very honest. I feel like we have the luxury of ignorance. It's like one of the greatest luxuries of capitalism is to actually get to a point where you can actually survive and being very stupid. And I think because of that, our leaders are getting dumber and we're electing dumber and dumber people to lead us. And at, that actually is a problem for the world and it's a problem for us. But the language of science and the language of math could become the language of truth in a country that really needs it badly. So when we talk about things we have these really dumb discussions about, well, you know, they want to teach kids that there's only oppressors and the oppressed, and they want to teach kids that, you know, the country is fundamentally racist. And one way to go about those decisions is just to fall into the normal kind of claptrap of the, the the positions, choose a side and kind of choose your adventure based on your side. Another way to do it would be to say, like, just like what we just did a minute ago about like, what does the science and what does math tell us about these things that we're discussing? Let, you know, let's stop talking about whether or not ivermectin is as effective as, <laughs> as you know, a clinically trialed vaccine because there's a science and there's a math to this. And it and the thing about science and the math is it's just it's not always perfect, but it's actually smarter than what we're doing. So we don't need it to be perfect. We just need it to be more rational and logical for us to have some shared kind of data and starting points to be able to have. Uh, rational national discussions with each other. And, you know, when we talk about racism, there's there's a math and a science to this. I'm starting to become an evangelist of this, I think, because I'm sick of the dumb debates that we're having on things that actually do have facts beneath them that we could get to. And I think we would be better off for it. Also, though, we've talked a lot in the years past. You've mentioned standardized testing a few times. So I do want to like end with talking about that a little bit, because I do think that there's a math and a science behind the reason that it standardizes. I think people, when they talk about that stuff, they're not psychometricians. So I think there'd be a way to talk about it. That's really kind of elementary. That doesn't, it's not actually what testing is or does. And again, it starts to sound like witchcraft. It doesn't sound like actually the science beneath that, that practice, but over the years, we've talked about the narrowing of the curriculum, the narrowing of the subjects to just reading and math and people talking so much about reading and math. And I would say, because I've had kids in schools for so long, I know they're not, they're not just doing reading and math. That's never been part of our life. That's actually never been true. You have to not be in any school anywhere to actually say that. That, you know, because I've had kids, I've been a father now for three decades. I've had kids in schools since the 90s, and it has never been true that all they're doing is reading and math. But oh my God, if they did, <laughs> especially the math part, and we keep forgetting the science part. We, we do test in science too. And I honestly think if we did a better job with the, the math and the science part, we would all be better off for it. Our kids would be better off as voters. They would be better off as citizens, compatriots, compatriots. They would understand each other better if we did a better job of just those two subjects. I appreciate history and electives and sociology and all the other things. But all those other things, science beneath them. So I think we maybe we need to just change direction and put a lot more emphasis on those two subjects, math and science. So what say you, math expert, teacher? <laughs> would we be better? You know, would we be better off? Well, you brought up a thing about like data science and numbers that people throw out to compare this and that, and they don't know. One more book, because it's, it's classic, came out in 1990, I think. It's called Innumeracy. And this guy, John Allen Palos, wrote definitive New York Times bestseller explaining about how people don't can't do some basic understanding. So in this internet age, people are bombarded with data and bad analysis of data, unlike ever before in history. So we actually do need in numeracy, that book 
back so people can have some kind of basis when they hear something on the news to make some kind of you, you, you made a specific example, but I forgot it, a second one. I mean, there was a guy, a congressperson or something that brought a snowball into Congress to show that global warming was a hoax, <laughs> you know, and that actually happened during the election, during, during uh, the 2020 election, there was a statistics that was presented to the Supreme Court that there's no possible way that Joe Biden could have caught up to Trump in Pennsylvania because he was down by this much at this time and the probability of him catching up, if the chances of him getting a vote is 49%, then the odds of him winning was one in a trillion. And it's like, well, yeah, except it was, it wasn't a random sampling before it was, it was, you know, so, so there's like statistics that nowadays it would be good for people to, to know about. Now, standardized tests, you should know, I love tests. I give tests. I just gave a test yesterday. I, I put my heart into the test and I try to make questions that are, they're not too hard. So if someone studies, I want them to, to, to be motivated. Like, oh, I studied and I was on the test. I have so many reasons. And I look at my test at the end and I'm proud and my students take my test and they do pretty well. And this, this goes for when I taught at other schools also, because I'm a very good test maker. So sometimes with the standardized tests, I have so many questions and there's a lot of data I wish I could give you. Like just once. I would love to take a kid who so-called failed his standardized test, a fifth grader, and I sit with them. And maybe you can you can facilitate this, you know. And and, and I, I I work with him, not 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 tutor him, but more like Socratic, you know, ask him questions, just to see could somebody really understand math and have a good understanding yet still fail this test because it was a multiple choice that makes people like just pick something quick. So I'm. I feel like we need a lot more information. I've also said before that if a kid fails a fifth grade test, did you ever give him a fourth grade test? Just to see, like, I think now, of course, we spend a lot of money on testing. I, I, I think that just like if we stopped teaching trigonometry, we'd be no worse off and probably better off with what we replaced it with. Sometimes I think if we stopped the, the, the mandated yearly for everyone, K3 through eight testing and did some kind of, you know, random sampling, you know, we get just as much information but for a lot less uh, of a cost. So I'm not opposed to tests. Our bread and butter in New York is the Regents exam, which is like a, a final that every student takes, you know, in the state. So I like a good test, if it's a good test. The New York Regents got so bad that they, that they made it so you only need 30% correct and it, and it curves up to a 65. Which is voodoo. So back in my day, you needed 65. <laughs> You could randomly guess on the on the first half, which is multiple choice. So there's some bad tests for sure, but I do like a good test. And even recently, someone sent me, they was in Florida, I think. They were trying to replace the Florida test with some series of tests that were made by some sort of Christian group. And people from my like side of the education wars said, hey, can you look at this test to show what garbage it is? And I looked at the test from the Christian group. The math test. I said, this is good. <laughs> you know, there are so, so, so there could be good tests and bad tests, but, but, you know, just like learning, if they're going to teach chess, learn chess, if they're going to learn math, learn math. Hopefully the test is reflective of, and someone who prepares for the test. So here's my pitch on the testing. First of all, I have equity concerns about not doing standardized tests, specifically standardized, right? I think that there's a reason for tests to be standardized across large swaths of kids. 
I've said this before, I do think that it takes a lot of blood samples to create a normative range. And we know a lot now by having a normative range that saves lives. Was that information, that data perfect that got us to a normative range on some of these things? And is it applicable in all situations? No. Has it saved many lives? Yes, it has. And does it give us a lot of like information, meta information, like big data information that helps us make some advances in other areas? So you can have individual doctors who say, I don't understand why I have to input, you know, the reporting on these blood samples that I'm doing with each of my patients. It's just a pain in the ass. And I don't, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. And that, I get that at, at the doctor level, like at this, at, at a kind of patient level, I get why that's a pain in the ass. But I also get the big data possibilities over time of what can be improved. Your thing about whether tests are good or not actually is super important because I think that should be answered, number one, by data and science over time. Two, I do think that people should know that they're always refining these tests over time. Like, so the test that I took, you know, the Iowa basics that I took in the 70s is something different than what's going on today, right? Like, so many of us parents, when we think about testing and tests, we might be locked into something that used to happen that doesn't even happen anymore. The tests have become more culturally sensitive over time. They use fewer multiple choice questions now than they used to use before. You have to do some better explaining, some deeper dive explaining than you used to have to do. You just said you love a good test and you love tests. I've always hated tests. So I'm the weirdest one to be pro test. There was nothing I hated more about school than tests. That's literally the thing I hated the worst. I, but I hated all of them. I didn't stop at standardized. I hated pop quizzes and quizzes and, you know, all that stuff. And I'd freeze up and, you know, now as an adult, I have three kids in schools and I, I just need multiple pieces of information. I need information from the teacher. I need information from the district. And I need the state to have a, you know, 96% of the teachers in Minnesota are white. The kids are getting more and more of color. We have not taken seriously the things like New York and other places have taken seriously about what we do for our kids of color over time and how they're doing. And for a period of time, we didn't even really kind of study it. We didn't even really like, we didn't even have the data to study it. So we have more data than we've ever had before now. All of America does because of No Child Left Behind. And I'm countercultural when I'm saying everything I'm saying right now. We are better off for all of the data that we got out of the NCLB years, you know, out of the No Child Left Behind years. Now, there might be some other effects that I'm missing when I say that. There might be some other, like, I'm open to all the other stuff. But in terms of, like, the number of lawsuits that we have had against states and districts for educational adequacy, for funding changes and boundaries to school districts, that all started with us having the data to be able to prove disparate impact. And guess what the data was that we used to prove disparate impact in all those cases? Test scores. Standardized tests, right? You know, when you say, I love a good test... I trust you, Gary, more than I've ever trusted you before now in these conversations that we've had that you're constructing very good tests. You're working at a very high level, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want 3 million teachers creating 3 million different versions of a test. And I have no way of, I don't know what the word would be, cross, cross-referencing cross across states, you know, across districts and states, like to know what's going on with my kids. I, I actually wouldn't even mind the standardized tests as, as, as if people, you know, I don't like if if I hear about a school that is just, you know, it takes three months and all they do is, is test prep, like, like it's too bad. Like if everyone just came in back in the old days and you just took the test and they maybe use that data to direct more funds to a school that's struggling or to train, you know, train the teachers or give them somehow some resources or I actually don't mind that, but it's unfortunate 
that it became this currency. And now, you know, if I hear about a school that does, you know, you said before, no school does just math and reading, but there are some that when it gets closer to the test, really focus on that. It's a shame. What they should have is the pop quiz, the standardized pop quiz. One day, you never know when it's coming and everyone takes a pop quiz and then there was no chance of cheating in a sense or by like by like preparing just for that at the expense of of something else. I think that's an idea that should be floated. That's a very good idea. Like, you know, more random because I mean, I think a lot of people say about standardized tests, it's a snap, snapshot on one day in time. And, you know, if you were giving more random testing where people had to like popcorn kind of in different places and show at different times, you know, what they could demonstrate in terms of their knowledge, you might get a better picture. I do want to wrap, but I'll say this last thing about the standardized testing. We can always come back to this. You can always come back, Gary, because I I think you're going to be very useful for a lot of different discussions I want to have. And the last time I was like, I want to talk to you more about math. So that's what this one was. But but I think we could go into some other conversations. But the, the last thing I'll say about this on the testing front, I don't know this to 100% be something that you could research or you could study. But I do know for a fact that wealthy people and a lot of the, the folks that are doing very well on the test, it's not just because they naturally know it. They are doing an amazing amount of funded test prep. The test prep industry in the United States is a booming industry. Uh, and if you have the resources to do it, and many in the Asian communities too, have formalized systems of test prep, $1,500 per kid, even for the poorest of among, among them, have Saturday schools and after school schools where they are actually doing a lot of this test prep. So when charter schools or other schools try to replicate that leg up that they're getting for free, it gets criticized. Like people complain about it and they criticize it. And they don't pay attention to the fact that this is exactly the same thing that other people are paying for to get their kids a leg up on the SAT, the ACT, entrance requirements to get into great public schools that have testing and whatnot. They are test prepping their asses off for those slots to get into those places. And they're paying for it. So with poor kids in in regular schools, in a way, yeah, I don't want kids sitting all day long and test prepping for three months. I think that's a bad thing. But man, how are you going to get them access to the same thing that the wealthy and these other populations are doing to get their kids into the best slots and the best colleges, the best high schools, and so on? In some cases, even kindergartens. You guys in New York have some really weird situations where people are going to get into the best kindergartens. I've never heard of this in my life until I looked at New York. It's so crazy. Yes, you're right. So I'm with you on a lot of this. It's great to talk to you because I, I think we had so much more in common about our ideas than most people would, would have figured. Yeah, I think like at the end of this discussion, and I've had one other discussion today that has made me that this is becoming a religion for me, is all these things that we disagree about have math and science beneath them. And that's the language with which we should talk about them, right? I feel like the ideological part of these conversations are less interesting to me now. And the more that I think that we just need a common language that tells us what is, like what is empirically true. And if we don't know, let's just say we don't know, but let's absolutely try and start from that as a starting point. So I'm very interested if somebody didn't do very well in math. That's why I was looking forward to this conversation. But you could go to my, uh, I have a YouTube channel and I put videos about like obscure math that I like. But during the pandemic, I made a 18 part, 10 hour series of videos. Wow. And what I did is I started with kindergarten math and just, I wasn't, I was doing it spontaneously. And I just talked about kindergarten math, what I think someone needs to know, what it is. And I worked my way up until I got to trigonometry. It's 10 hours long. It's not slickly produced, 
But I promise anyone who listens, who tries to watch, maybe you just jump ahead. So I, I, what was geometry? What was algebra? And I liked, I did basically a 10-hour monologue. You can imagine why. It's in 18 parts, but not many people watch this. But to try to get the ideas, what are we teaching? What's our purpose? Are we accomplishing that purpose? There's also a book called The Math Myth by Andrew Hacker, which he didn't know what he was talking about, but his main premise was true about like wasted resources on too much math. And he gives some compelling arguments, but he also gives some really weird ones. Like he scoffs at anything in math that has a funny sounding name. I do too. He'll say like, oh, <laughs> we're, but, but rather just because something has a funny name doesn't mean it's a bad thing. You know, they're, instead of studying stats, they're doing quadratic paraboloids. It's like, okay, maybe quadratic paraboloids, you know, should be renamed, but it doesn't mean it's bad just because it could be a very interesting thing. But we'll definitely talk some more. Yeah, we'll come back to it. For people listening, I definitely would say go out and check out the YouTube videos, because I think we need to keep this conversation going. We definitely need more of our math teachers and our teachers to have time with them because we're having a, a dumb discussion nationally about these things. And the more that we get educators into the discussion to help publicly educate, like, you know, you teach in classrooms, but there's also like a public intellectual part of this. Like people always talk about pedagogy. I talk a lot about andragogy. How do adults learn? We need to actually, we need smarter adults. So this is part of my ministry around andragogy, which is can we create conversations and platforms and recorded things where adults get smarter and learn things they didn't know? I learned a lot today and I love your, see, this was partially selfish, you know, to get your explanation of why is algebra a thing? Why is geometry a thing? trigonometry and so on. Those are things I think more of us, like the stuff you would want to know, but are afraid to ask to get a simple answer to. We need more of that. It's like the emperor's new clothes a little bit where people are scared to say, I think that maybe trigonometry is not so important that someone else is going to say, what? That must mean, you know, because you don't understand it. It's like, well, I'm someone who does understand it and I'm saying that. So they can't say that to me. That's why you're our superpower. <laughs> we can say, listen, yeah, you can say that to me, but you can't say it to, to Gary. So Gary, thank you so much for coming today. And we will have you back to discuss some other things. You got it. Thanks so much. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 